Tonight we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 9. That's where we're going to start. And we left off last week in Nehemiah 8, where Nehemiah has come back and they've rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. After they went away to captivity, Zerubbabel brought back his group of 45,000 plus, and they rebuilt the temple. Smaller version, but they rebuilt the temple. All this after Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians destroyed everything in 586 B.C. So the captives have come back after 70 years, and they've been there, they've been there 100 years. So Zerubbabel led a group first, then Ezra led a group later on, a much smaller group, and now Nehemiah has come back over 100 years after that to rebuild the wall. And we know that's the whole background to the book. He's built the wall. They built it in 52 days. He did in 52 days what no one else could do in 100 years. But they're still enemies. They've got this wall built for their central place of worship and their capital. But no one lives there. And the big problem is, or the, not the problem, but the challenge is to get people to live in the city and repopulate the city as the center and the heartbeat of the nation of Israel. And so he went through the registry of the original returning captives from 100 years before, and he's looked up everybody, and they're recruiting people. Ultimately, they're going to recruit people to live in Jerusalem and make that commitment to the nation that way. And that's where we left off. But in that happening, there's the story where they looked at the census from times past, and then they built a pulpit, and they began to teach the word of God, the law, for the beginning of the month in the autumn, and the people were under conviction. They wept, and Nehemiah and Ezra said, don't cry, the Lord is good, there's a time of rejoicing. So they had a celebration. They celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles like never been celebrated in the history of Israel, and we come forward from that tonight as we pick it up here in chapter 9. So verse 1, chapter 9. Now on the 24th day of this month, so this is after that tabernacle celebration, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting in sackcloth and with dust on their heads. Then those of the Israelite lineage separated themselves from all the foreigners, and they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law, the Old Testament, of the Lord their God for one-fourth of the day. And for another fourth they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. Then Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherbiah, Bani, Shaniah stood on the stairs of the Levites and cried out with a loud voice to the Lord their God. And the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabaniah, Sherbiah, Hadijah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said. I just pause it for a second. So we get, we get the context right now. So this is this generation, and now these religious leaders for the people, the people have come back after mourning. Okay, so they celebrated. God said, this is a time to celebrate when you've read the law. Don't, you know, we want to celebrate because God is good and we're the people of covenant. They did tabernacles. They had a great time. Now a few weeks later, now we're going to do business. Now it's time to be reflective, take inventory, and make things right. So everything in its time, everything in its season. And now there's going to be a record of the history of Israel as a nation that we're going to be reading. But the context, again, is this generation reading the law after coming off that huge high of celebrating tabernacles, that holiday, that Jewish holiday. And now they're reading the law. And this is we're going to get Jewish history as we go through this. We read this in 
uh, the continuation of verse 5. Stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all the blessings and praise. You alone are the Lord. You've made heaven, the heavens of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and everything on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve them all. The host of heaven worships you. So they start out with God the creator, basically recounting Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. God's God, we talked about this Saturday night. There's trillions of galaxies and billions of people, and God knows every cell in your body. He's got this. It's his universe. He's in control of every dimension that it has, which at least is two, what we see in eternity. All right? And he's got this. So the Lord is good. They're praising God as the creator of everything, as we should as well. Verse 7. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. And you found his heart faithful before you and made a covenant with him to give the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, and the Jebusites, and the Girgashites to give it to his descendants. You've performed your words, for you are righteous. So in these two verses, we recount where God called Abraham out of Ur the Chaldeans, modern Iraq, and he brought him as the head of the faith. That's Abraham. He brought him to the promised land. And there came the patriarchs from Abraham, Isaac, the son of promise, Jacob, the son of Isaac, the 12 sons of Jacob, becoming the 12 tribes of Israel, God changing Jacob's name to Israel. This is modern Israel, the land as we understand it to this day. Most of you know that, but in case you don't, you should. And God promised it to the descendants of Abraham, to the descendants of the son of promise, who is Isaac, which is the ethnic Jews who are there right now. He promised it to him. He gave it to him. And again, this is all, this is in the book of Genesis after creation in the flood, in the post-flood world. But you will notice this phrase. We did a whole study on Abraham uh, just a few months ago in Chronicles when we're going through the history of the Chronicles. But I would just point out to you this. I love verse 8. God said, they're saying to God that you found Abraham's heart faithful to you. What a beautiful phrase. Isn't that beautiful? Just worth just saying as we're reading through this. Wow. Just that people could look on our life and say, you know, years after we're gone or whatever, you found her heart faithful before you. You found his heart faithful before you. What a wonderful thing to be said about us that our heart was found faithful before the Lord. That's a very worthy objective and goal of every day that we breathe and live on planet Earth, for sure. Father Abraham, not only was he found faithful, but we're also told by God himself that Abraham was his friend. Verse 9, going forward from Abraham 400 years to the time of the Jewish nation being in Egypt as slaves, you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry by the Red Sea. You showed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all of his servants, and against all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted proudly, against them, that is Israel, your people. So you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them, so they went through the midst of the sea on the dry land, and their persecutors you threw into the deep as a stone into the mighty waters. Moreover, you led them by day with a cloudy pillar, and by night with a pillar of fire, to give them light on the road which they should travel. You came down also on Mount Sinai and spoke to them from the heavens and gave them just ordinances and true laws, good statutes and commandments. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them precepts, statutes, and laws by the hand of Moses, your servant. So here we recount 
Exodus, the book of Exodus, how God delivered the Jews from the bondage of slavery. God, Pharaoh declared war on God, and God responded, don't ever declare war on God. It's always a bad idea. And, of course, as we know, on his people, God protects his people, the nation of Israel and the church of Jesus Christ. And even when it seems like he's not protecting them, he is protecting them. He's just working on a bigger plan and bigger picture than our little finite minds can understand in the scope of his universe. A trillion galaxies, billions of people, every generation, he's got it. He is the God of I am, the, the burning bush. I am that I am. And Moses was a deliverer. They did walk through the miraculous, through the Red Sea, where it stood up as walls. And they walked through it. The Egyptian army was destroyed, as God said they would. And he committed, he demonstrated signs and wonders against Egypt and his confirmation to his people. And then, coming from signs and wonders, he brought them to Mount Sinai, where he gave them the Ten Commandments. So this is a beautiful record of God's faithfulness, right? There's no human element, per se, of the people of covenant yet. Just good stuff. There's no rebellion. It's just God's faithfulness. He's the initiator. He's sovereign. You know, he called Moses, he chose Moses, he called Israel, and here they go. And they're at Sinai, and they're getting the law, and the law is good. God's word is good, and all that he does is good. But then in verse 15, he says something very interesting. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger, and brought them water out of the rock for their thirst, and told them to go possess the land which you had swore to give them. He was not just bringing them out of the bondage of Egypt, but back in the book of Genesis, God had said to Abraham, the iniquity of the Amorites, or literally the Canaanite people, is not yet full. And that he said, your descendants will go into captivity for 400 years, which is a long time. But they'll come back from that. He, God would bring judgment on the Amorites because their iniquities were now full. There was no hope for them. And the land would be given to his people of covenant, Israel. Thus, the book of Exodus and eventually coming in the promised land in the book of Joshua, which we'll get to in a moment. But there, he says that you gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water out of the rock for their thirst. He brought them out of something. He was taking them to something, out of bondage, to the promised land. But in the middle there, he's providing for them supernaturally. And most of you know the story, but the water came out of the rock supernaturally. Then God fed them the manna from heaven, which was manna, what, what is it? And it was there in the morning at the crack of dawn and they could scoop it up and it was no good by you know by nine o'clock you know when everyone's punching in on the clock it was it was there in the morning you couldn't keep it for the next day it was a day-to-day -day provision just enough for the day everything they needed his provision for them so those three great drives in the human life are air water and food three minutes of air three days of water three weeks without food those are, that's kind of your cutoff point or you can come the other way around and God provided for them for 40 years in that wilderness wandering with that miraculous water and that manna. And we know that it was speaking of Jesus because there in 1 Corinthians 10, we're told that, that as the Jews went through this experience, that the rock was Christ. The rock represented Christ. The, the water was supernatural. It was miraculous. And then we're also told that the manna, Jesus tells us that the, their fathers ate manna in the wilderness, but he's the bread of life. So in the Gospel of John in chapter 4, there with the woman at the well, Jesus said, drink from this water, you'll thirst again. But the, the water I give is everlasting water. And she was thinking temporal, he's speaking eternal. And before the conversation was done, or by the time the conversation was done, he helped her realize that her fulfillment could only be found in Jesus. And even as we need water to live, we need Jesus to live. 
and Jesus is the one who refreshes our soul. And our earthly drives are designed to drive us to the Lord spiritually and eternally. That's what Jesus is teaching us in the Gospel of John. Jesus is the living water. And when we're spirit-filled, it says that torrents of living water come from us, that we bring that life to other people. Jesus was the rock. When that rock was struck, and like it's, it, it, it represents Christ. And we're told that the things in the Old Testament are shadows of things to come, but the fullness is Christ. And we realize tonight, as we're going to have communion, that as that rock represented Christ, so too the bread and the cup represent Christ to us tonight. And as that water represented the living water of eternal life in Jesus Christ, so too this cup of the new covenant with communion tonight represents the new and everlasting covenant of life for us, the life Christ has given us. They saw the life Christ would give in the future, in a preview of things to come. They were looking forward when they got that water from the rock. But when we have communion, we're, going, we're looking back and we're doing it in remembrance of him, of what he's done. Theirs was incomplete. Ours is complete. Isn't that amazing and beautiful? And the same with the bread, because when he fed the 5,000, there when he fed the 5,000, the next day they're looking for more food, and he said, you're just, he basically said, you're looking for a handout. And they went in this dialogue, and he's trying to help them be spiritual when they're temporal and carnal. And they said, oh, our fathers ate man in the wilderness. And he said, well, you know, I'm the bread of life that comes down from heaven. So for 40 years, that generation in the wilderness and their children, because everyone over 20 didn't go in except Joshua and Caleb, but the children did. When they're eating the manna, it was speaking and representing the life that we have in Christ. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And he said on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread and said, take this bread. It's my body broken and given for you. Unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you cannot be my disciples. And if you think carnal or physical to that, you're just like, wow, that's, that's, that's really weird. And that's what the world's used to attack the church in times past. Caesar did that. You know, like, they're, Christians are weird. You know, they, they, they say this. When Jesus said that, many of the disciples withdrew. And he said to Peter, well, are you going to withdraw too? Because I said that, this, that, you know, my body, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you cannot be my disciples. Peter's like, well, where are we going to go? You know, where are we going to go? You're it. But knowing Peter, you might have been thinking like, well, that sounds kind of odd, you know, but still, like, what's the alternative? You know, stay with you and figure this out or walk away from you and be lost. Some of the sayings of Jesus are hard. But it's not that hard when you understand it. Jesus isn't teaching like temporal. He's teaching eternal. So when we have communion tonight and we eat the bread and drink the cup, he said, this is my body broken for you. It is, it's a physical thing, but it's a flashpoint of spiritual things. And it takes us back to what he did on the cross. It brings us to here and now to be forgiven of sins. And it looks us forward, takes us forward to doing so in the kingdom of glory when we have communion tonight. So for 40 years, they were so close. The older generation in unbelief and the younger generation going in, a great generation, every time they scooped the manna, it's saying, Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When they drink that water from the rock, it says, Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we're told in 1 Corinthians 10, it's written for our admonition to reverently appreciate these things and understand these things. Everyone over 20 missed it, except Joshua and Caleb when they ate the manna 
and had that water. But, you know, we're good to go with the Lord. Verse 16, we read on. But they and our fathers acted proudly. They hardened their necks and did not heed your commandments. They refused to obey, and they were not mindful of your wonders that you did among them. But they hardened their necks, and in their rebellion, they appointed a leader to return to their bondage. Remember, they wanted to go back to Egypt. But you are God, ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness, and did not forsake them. Even when they made a molded cap for themselves and said, this is your God that brought you out of Egypt and worked great provo uh, provocations, yet in your manifold mercies you did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud did not depart from them by day to lead them on the road, nor the pillar of fire by night to show them the way they should go. You also gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. So the summary of that wilderness wandering is God's faithfulness to them in spite of their rebellion and disobedience to him. And that phrase there in verse 17 that you got a ready to pardon, gracious and merciful. If you recall when Moses said to the Lord, show me your glory, and he went in the cleft of the rock and the Lord passed by him, when God showed him his glory, God declared these things about himself, of his nature to Moses. So it's appropriate that the speakers right now are quoting this because in the context of chronology, that's when God revealed himself as gracious and merciful, even with the law being righteous and the 3,000 that were struck down for the idolatry with the golden calf, He's still gracious and merciful. That's pointed out here. But they didn't, they didn't respond. Everyone over 20, they didn't enter in because they didn't believe. But God was faithful to them. Isn't that encouraging? In spite of people's rebellion and unbelief and hardening their hearts, the people you love and you care about that maybe resist the Lord or fight against the Lord, isn't it good to know that God's still good? It's still good to them? He re it rains on the just and the unjust. The Lord is good. And... Who can understand all the things that he's working in his universe of a trillion galaxies with billions of people? But one thing for sure is God is merciful and gracious. And when people are stiff-necked and hard-hearted and rebellious and, and just in folly, the Lord's still going to be true to his character and his faithfulness to himself as he's revealed himself to humanity. His mercy and grace is his character. And it's not going to change because people provoke it or take advantage of it. Now we read on. So that's all the book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now in verse 22, it really takes us to historically what would be Joshua, the book of Judges, and the Kings and Chronicles, which we've been in the last couple of years. Moreover, you gave them kingdoms and nations and divided them into districts, so they took possession of the land of Sihon, the land, the land of the king of Heshbon, the land of Og, king of Bashan. You also multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, brought them into the land which you had told their fathers to go in and possess. So the people went in and possessed the land. You subdued them before the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hands with their kings and the people of the land, that they might do with them as they wished. And they took strong cities and a rich land and possessed houses full of all goods, cisterns already dug, vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance, so they ate and were filled, grew fat, and delighted themselves in your great goodness. And of course, in the book of Joshua, they did come into the land. They did conquer most of it, and they did inherit things that they didn't earn, 
God divided by lots the territory to the tribes, and God was very good to them and blessed them. So that's really a summary of the book of Joshua right there. But then we kind of get to judges and what happened after that. Nevertheless, verse 26, they were disobedient and rebelled against you, cast your law behind their backs, killed your prophets who testified against them to turn them to yourself, and they were great provocation. Therefore you delivered them into the hand of their enemies who oppressed them, and in the time of their trouble, when they cried to you, you heard from heaven, and according to your abundant mercies, you gave them deliverers who saved them from the hand of their enemies. We see this in the book of Judges, and we also see it in the history of the Kings and Chronicles as well. But after they had rest, they again did evil before you. Therefore, you left them in the hand of their enemies, so they had dominion over them. Yet when they returned and cried out to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies, and testified against them that you might bring them back to your law. Yet they acted proudly and did not heed your commandments, but sinned against your judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. And they shrugged their shoulders and stiffened their necks and would not hear Yet for many years you had patience with them and testified against them by your spirit in your prophets. Yet they would not listen. Therefore you gave them to the hand of the peoples of the land. Nevertheless, in your great mercy, you did not utterly consume them nor forsake them. For you are God, gracious and merciful. So we see here as the speakers are recounting God's faithfulness in the historical record of God's word, that cycle where the people sin, cry out for deliverance, God gives them a deliverer, and this cycle of sin, deliverance, sin, deliverance, and through it all, because God, because the word delivered used multiple times, and through it all we see words like patience and mercy and grace, where God was just working. And, you know, they're, they're summarizing how the nation acted, but of course we know in any nation, in any timeline, we each have our own choices to be a part of the good work of the Lord, regardless of what the larger mass of people is doing. And we've just spent a couple of years reading about those type of people, men and women, as we've been going through these historical books. But you love this phrase there in verse 31, you are God, gracious and merciful. And like I said, I reaffirm again, as we read it back there in verse 16 and 17, excuse me, verse 18, 17, that God is gracious and merciful. And as we're having communion tonight, it's a good reminder that when we come to the table of the Lord, it, it declares his grace and mercy. And we know that grace is a gift. If you earn it, it's not grace. And we're saved by grace. So God saved the world that he gave his son. And so we're reminded tonight, and when we have communion once a month or twice a month, it reminds us, these elements remind us that we are not earning our way to heaven. We are accepted in Christ, and that's how we're going to heaven. Our positional righteousness through faith in Jesus. The Father sees the Son in his perfection when he sees us when we've responded to Christ. And he gives us communion on a regular basis to remind us that we are saved by grace. By grace you have been saved, that through faith, not of works of the law, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, right? So we know that grace saves us, grace works in us, and transforms us and takes us forward to walk in the workmanship and fulfill those wonderful things that God has for our life. So when we have communion, it's to remind us, it's a flashpoint of grace. Do this in remembrance of me. What do we remember most about Jesus? That we're saved by grace. That God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. 
the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. That's grace. Grace is Jesus on the cross and not me and not you. Because we all should be on the cross for our sins. For the wages of sin is death. And we're all sinners. So the communion table tonight reminds us of that amazing grace. God so loved the world, he gave his son. We have children, we have grandchildren, and, you know, there's all kinds of YouTube videos of adults having fistfights against each other over their kids feeling like the umpire didn't rule in their kids' favor. We are very protective of our kids. In our family feed, one of the kids posted something they saw on national news, a big brawl at a soccer game in Irvine. And it's all these adults fighting at a club soccer match, right? That's people fighting because they feel their kids were wronged by the refs or another kid. That's who we are. Or as I used to say when Luke was pitching, I felt like the umpire wasn't giving a fair strike. So under Luke, I'd say, call it both ways, Blue. Because Blue's a nickname for the umpire. i say, come on, Blue, call that strike zone both ways now. I'm not about to give my son to die for Blue. I'm calling out Blue for not being fair to my son. It's like when you go to the principal's office and something's gone on with your child and you're defending them at the school. You ever done that? Oh, man, I'm telling you what, it gets worked up. It gets hot. It gets heated. But God so loved the world, he gave his son. By this we know love, that Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. That's why it's called amazing grace. Keep that in mind tonight when we're doing communion time and worship with Danny when we come back up here. For you are God, gracious and merciful. And then merciful, mercy, of course, is not getting the punishment we deserve. Mercy is like, you should have gotten it, but you didn't. Mercy is, you deserve the punishment, but you didn't get it. And we all know the game of Monopoly growing up that you got to get out of jail card. That's like mercy. You should have gone to jail, but you didn't go to jail. You got out of jail. And mercy is, God doesn't deal with us according to our iniquities and our sins. And the, the punishment we deserve, he doesn't give it to us. For his people that are saved, his children, he chastens us. But as a father loves his children, so the Lord chastens those whom he loves. And those who are trained by chastening, it produces holiness, we're told from the book of Hebrews. So mercy is not getting what we deserve. It's kind of funny, but you know, you know how it is with two parents. You've got two parents, and you know how that when you're growing up. But I just tell you, for me, it's just so clear. My mom had swift retribution on me for anything and everything I ever did. And I deserved it all. And I said this in my book. I didn't get you know, half the spankings, I des- all the ones I got I deserved, and I didn't get half the ones I did deserve. So whatever my mom did to me in a fit of frustration, I had it coming. But my dad would come home from work, and my dad was very pragmatic. He's a Marine. He's logical. Dad wasn't, my mom was Irish. Like, she's 5'2", the most firebrand Irish Catholic you ever saw in your life. She's ready to take on whoever, particularly me when I deserved it. I can't really say, like, in my childhood, I felt like I got mercy from my mom, but I definitely got it from my dad. Because my dad would come home from, you know, 9 to 5 Marine, you know, whatever, Quantico, Charlottesville, wherever we were. And, and he'd come home, my mom would be like, yeah, I can't take him. I can't take him, you know. And, and uh, go to, and, and dad would come home. I was like, he was supposed to really inflict stuff, but he, he wouldn't. He just couldn't do it. He just, he showed me mercy, you know. And, like, when he really had to spank me, I would, like, he would go really easy on me, and I'd go really loud. So we'd both fake out mom thinking I was really getting it. But, but he and I both knew I wasn't getting it. But he and I both knew we could go to dinner afterwards and all be good. That's mercy. 
in Joy Brand's little world back in the 60s. And we all know what mercy's like when you really deserve something and a punishment, you didn't get it. The Lord is merciful. Praise God. Thank you, Lord, for being merciful with us. We praise you for that. Then we read on in verse 32. Just keep that in mind as we have communion tonight. Now, therefore, okay, so he's recounted the history of, you know, what went on in the land. They went into captivity. Other people ruled over them. They're back. And so verse 32, he says, Now, therefore, our God, the great and mighty awesome God, who keeps covenant and mercy, do not let all, all, all the trouble seem small before you that has come upon us, our kings and our princes, our priests and our prophets, our fathers and all of your people, from the days of the kings of Assyria until this day. However, you are just in all that has befallen us, for you have dealt faithfully, but we've done wickedly. Neither our kings, nor our princes, our priests, nor our fathers have kept your law, nor heeded your commandments and your testimonies with which you testified against them. For they not served you in their kingdom, or in the many good things of, that you gave them, or in the large and rich land which you set before them, nor did they turn from their wicked works. Here we are, servants today, and the land that you've given to our fathers to eat its fruit and its bounty. Here we are, servants in it, and it yields much increase to the kings you've set over us because of our sins. Also, they have dominion over our bodies and our cattle at their pleasure, and we are in great distress. And because of all this, we make a sure covenant and write it. Our leaders, our Levites, and our priests seal it. So verse 38 sets up chapter 10, which we'll get to in just a second. But do draw your attention to verse 36. I was talking about this on Saturday. You guys know I'm big on today. I'm all about today. Today is everything because it's with the Lord. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of repentance. If you will not harden your heart this day, today. With God, it's always today. And people, especially people of covenant, people of faith in Jesus, if you can really discipline yourself to stay in today, you can be very fruitful Today will set you free from condemnation from yesterday. Today will keep you safe from anxiety and fear of tomorrow. Today is everything, and today is what we have this day. Give us this day our daily bread. It's always this day. And if you stay in this day with the Lord, well, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Sufficient is the trouble for the day. We just need to stay in the day. And whatever came before us, there is nothing we can do to change it. In that sense of, we can't undo history. History is history. All the ideas of how to make things right from sins of the past for ethnic people groups against other ethnic people groups or anything like that. We can't, human history is filled with takers and you can't change the past. We have today. But the beauty of Christ, and again, the communion table tonight, is we can be forgiven for yesterday. And the person who can receive grace and mercy and forgiveness for yesterday will be fruitful today. But the person who falls into a trap of allowing the devil and their own conscience that's been cleansed by Christ, working against Christ, because, you see, when you don't accept mercy and grace and forgiveness for your past failures, for, to walk in today and be fruitful for today, it cripples you. See, you're crippled from being fruitful. The devil wants to disqualify you and make the blood of Christ unappropriated to your healing and restoration to be fruitful today. He wants to stop us 
He wants to condemn us, the devil, and he wants to keep us from being fruitful. So the one who tempted you yesterday for your failures and set you up for it, he's want, he wants to be here today, even though you don't want to walk in those failures today, he wants to remind you of those failures today to keep you from being victorious today and going forward. And that's why it's so important to stay in today. I just love this phrase, verse 36. Here we are, your servants, today. It's like a 12-step program in this. It's, just, it's, like a, it's, one of those, it's one of those things like, here we are today. I mean, this is it. You have today, one day at a time. This is who we are today. This, what you see is what you get. This is the woman you are. This is the man you are. This, but, you know, we do, today doesn't have to be defined by the failures of yesterday. Today can be defined by the faith and the hope and the future right now with the Lord. Today is so important. See, they, they read all this passage, and they're like, what can we possibly do? We can't undo any of this. This is the way it was. This is what happened. But here we are today, your servants today. And these people rule over us, and it's a horrible situation. So we're renewing a covenant with you, and we're going to sign this document. We're serious with you. It's all about today. You can't change the past. In 62 years of living, I can see how the past wants to work against me and wants to work against you. Please don't use the past against other people either. Let it give you discernment, maybe, and how to deal with some people, if you will. But you got to give, if the Lord gives you a clean slate every day, you got to at least give people a fresh chance and not hold it against them for things. Don't judge Joey Brand by who I was at 42 or 52 or even 58. This is who I am at 62. This is who you get. And this is a better version than last year's version at the same time. And you should be a better version, and many of you are. So forget yesterday. You have today. And whatever consequences we have in our life, from our forefathers, from our politicians, from anything else in the universe, we have today and accepting responsibility for it today. Here we are, your servants today. Maybe we weren't a servant yesterday, but we can be a servant today. They, this, these speakers, this, these leaders, they, they understood the significance of the day. Here we are, servants today. And all that history is behind us. We're, we're servants today. Now, chapter 10, so verse 38 says we're going to make a sure covenant and write it. So this is what we're going to do. And so this is what they did. And it's a short chapter, and we'll get through this uh, fairly quickly. Now, those who placed their seal on the documents were... Nehemiah the governor, because it always starts at the top. It's like their constitution. Uh, the son of Halkaliah, uh, Hal that was Nehemiah. Zedekiah, Sariah, and Zedekiah, Sariah, Azariah, Jeremiah, Pasher, Amariah, Malchajah, Hattush, Shabaniah, Malak, Haram, Merimoth, Obadiah, Daniel, Ginnathan, Barak, Mashalam, Abijah, Mijamin, Maziah, Bilgai, and Shimeiah, these were the priests. The Levites, Jeshua, the son of Azaniah, uh, Binui, the son of Hanadad, and Kadmiel, their brethren, Shabaniah, Hadijah, Kalita, Peliah, Hanan, Micah, Rehob, Hashabiah, Zachar, Shirbiah, Shabaniah, Hadijah, Bani, and Beninu, the leaders of the people, Parash, Pathan, Moab, Elam, Zatu, Bani, Buni, Azgad, Bibe, Adadonijah, Bigbai, Adin, Atur, 
Hezekiah, Azur, Hodajah, Hashem, Bezai, Harif, Anath, Nebai, Mag, Piash, Meshalam, Hezir, Mesizabel, Zadok, Jedua, Pelatiah, Hananan, Ananan, Aya, Hosea, Hananiah, Hashab, Halohesh, Philha, Sobek, Reham, Hashbanah, Masahiah, Ahijah, Hanan, Anan, Malak, Haram, and Benah. These names are important. Think of, the, think of all the people that signed the U.S. Constitution. Those people risk their lives with King George, traitors, you know. There's half the colonies thought they should die the moment they signed, well, they put their John Hancock on it, right? When you seal a covenant and you put your name on something, that's a big deal, especially when you're declaring full allegiance, complete allegiance to the Lord and restoration of things that were lost because they're still under that covenant. See, we're not going back to the law that way because we're, that's, that, as it says in Hebrews, the old covenant is obsolete and passed away by Jesus the new covenant and he's the everlasting covenant but in their situation to make it right it's going to be right within the covenant that they're under so they're just saying we're going to do what's right right now and we're going to put our name to it and we mean business remember last week we saw where Nehemiah wrote read all the names and researched all the names of their forefathers from two generations prior and these guys Two generations later, are stepping up saying, we're all in. We're all in, man. We're, we're the godly line extending. We're the faith expanding. We're all in. And think about those pioneers we talked about last week who made the 2% who made the move to rehab with the land 100 years prior. And their faithfulness and the spiritual principle of how their faith is imparted and now living 100 years later and their descendants who are signing this document saying, we are all in. We're not kind of in. We are all in, all out, 100% in with the Lord and what's doing right. Just a reminder, the more all in we are in time, when we leave, that spiritual principle will be passed on to our children and our children's children to be all in. A righteous man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, and that seems to be the context of you know temporal wealth, but the greatest wealth is the spiritual wealth. And when you get generations and generations of people where your faith and your commitment, it, it doesn't die when you die. It lives on in the people you impacted. And these people signing this document is the faith of people 100 years ago coming back to the land to rebuild that temple. And 100 years later, their descendants are these people, these names saying, we are all in, and we are not messing around. We are serious about our faith and renewing the covenant and doing more than what's ever been done. Remember, they just had a tabernacle feast like it's never been had in a 1,000 years. These people, are they're repentant, and they're serious, and you got to appreciate it. Verse 28, now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, and the singers, and the uh, Nithinim, and all those who had separated themselves from the people of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, Everyone who had knowledge and understanding, these joined with their brethren, their nobles, and entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his ordinances and his statutes. We would not give our daughters as wives to the peoples of the land, nor take their daughters for our sons. 
If the people of the land brought wares or grain to sell on the Sabbath day, we would not buy it from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we would forego the seventh year produce, that's the seven-year Sabbath, let the land rest, and the exacting of every debt. Also, we made ordinances for ourselves to exact from ourselves yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of God, for the showbread, for the regular grain offering, for the regular burnt offering of the Sabbaths, the new moons, and the set feast, for the holy things, for the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and all the work of the house of our God. We cast lot among the priests, the Levites, and the people for bringing the wood offering into the house of our God according to our father's houses at the appointed time year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. And we made ordinances to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all of our trees year by year to the house of the Lord to bring the firstborn of our sons and our cattle as it is written in the law and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks to the house of our God to the priests who minister in the house of our God to bring the first fruits of our dough, our offerings, the fruit from all kinds of trees, the new wine, the oil, the priests, the storerooms of the house of our God, and to bring the tithes of our land to the Levites, for the Levites should receive the tithes in all of our farming communities. And the priests, the descendants of Aaron, shall be at the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up a tenth of the tithes to the house of our God to the rooms of the storehouse. So that's that principle. There's the tithe plus 10% saved. We've been talking about that. For the children of Israel and the children of the Levi shall bring the offering of the grain, of the new wine, and the oil to the storerooms where the articles of the sanctuary are, where the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers are, and we will not neglect the house of our God. They're just, isn't Nehemiah like a really, you know, once we got past those first few chapters, just some really good stuff here. You just love the commitment. It's, to me, it's inspiring. I hope it's inspiring for you when you read about people like this and committed like this. It is noteworthy. They said, hey, we're going to, they're identified by what they're not going to do in their covenant, in their document signing, and they're identified by what they are going to do. And isn't that what it is for being a disciple of Christ, being salt and light in the world? Truly, in our homes, in our marriages, in our communities where we work, our extended families, our commitment to Christ is identified by in some cases, what we don't do, and in other cases, what we do do. We, we draw those distinctions. of like, no, that's not for us, but this is for us. And it's summarized so well in verse 28 where it says, all those who separated themselves. And that's really what it is. This is the will of God, your sanctification, 1 Thessalonians. This is the will of God, your sanctification, if salt loses its flavor, it's good for nothing. So I'm reminded, we're all reminded, that the will of God in the life of a follower of Jesus Christ is to be set apart. We're in the world, but not of the world. We're passing through. We're pilgrims like Father Abraham and Mother Sarah. We're just people of promise, and we're just passing through. We're like 2023, 20, 2024 Bedouins for Jesus. We're just, we might live in houses, but... You know, we're just, we're just passing through. And we're identified in our sanctification by what we do not do. And we're identified in our sanctification by what we do do. And one thought where it said that you bring the offerings and the tithes and bring your sons. Remember, the firstborn son belonged to the Lord, but you had to redeem them back. 
So you had to make a sacrifice on behalf of your son. So I think it's interesting as your posterity expanded and your identity and future generations expanded, that once you did the offering for your firstborn, you're really saying, Lord, it's all from you. It's all of you. What are you saying, Joy? The last thing I'm saying tonight is your firstborn should belong to the Lord if you have a firstborn. They don't have to be in ministry per se like our daughter Hannah or the son we gave up to the Lord the Lord took from us. But like, if you really see your children not as a gift to you, but as a gift to the Lord, it'll serve you well. So separate yourself, separate your household, and shine for the Lord as the people of covenant. Yes and amen.